Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is the first topic in the sports medicine lecture series. We will try to cover clinically relevant material while highlighting the key testable topics. In this segment, we will discuss knee anatomy and biomechanics. Specifically, we will discuss the major ligamentous structures, including the ACL, PCL, MCL and LCL, and posterior lateral corner. We will briefly go over the structure and function of the meniscus and some of the biomechanics of the knee joint. This lecture is a little longer, but it is designed to give you a 30,000 foot view of the anatomy and function of different structures in the knee that we'll be focusing on in greater detail in later lectures. All right, let's get started. The ACL is a dense structure made up of 90% type 1 collagen and 10% type 3 collagen that runs from the posterior medial aspect of the lateral femoral condyle to a broad insertion just anterior and between the intercondylar eminences on the tibia. On average, it is 33 millimeters long and 11 millimeters in diameter. It is made up of two bundles, the anteromedial and posterior lateral bundles. Remember that the posterior cruciate ligament has an anterior lateral or PAL PAL, and that the ACL is just the opposite with an anterior medial and posterior lateral. During knee flexion, the anterior medial bundle gets tight in flexion, while the posterior lateral bundle gets tight in extension. The anterior medial bundle is the primary restraint to anterior translation of the tibia, while the posterior lateral bundle has a greater contribution to rotational stability. As a whole, the ACL provides the primary restraint against anterior translation of the tibia. However, it is important to keep in mind the secondary functions it provides by limiting tibial rotation relative to the femur and varus and valgus angulation. The ACL receives its blood supply from the middle geniculate artery and is innervated by the posterior articular nerve, a branch of the tibial nerve. The native ACL has the strength of 2200 newtons against anterior translation. Like the ACL, the PCL is a dense, collagenous, intracapsular, extrasynovial structure. It originates at the posterior tibial sulcus below the level of the articular surface and inserts onto the anterolateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. It is larger than the ACL about 38 millimeters long and 13 millimeters in diameter, and capable of resisting about 2,500 to 3,000 newtons of posterior directed force. It contains two bundles as well, the anterior lateral and posterior medial. So again, remember, PAL, P-A-L, posterior cruciate, anterior lateral. If you can remember that, you can deduce the rest of the cruciate bundles. The anterolateral bundle gets tight in flexion and is the most important for posterior stability at 90 degrees of flexion. I'll say that again. The anterolateral bundle gets tight in flexion and is the most important structure for posterior stability at 90 degrees of knee flexion. The PCL is also associated with the meniscofemoral ligaments. The ligament of Humphrey lies anterior and the ligament of Risberg lies posterior. Remember, they are in alphabetical order, H in front of W. The meniscofemoral ligaments run from the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus and insert into the substance of the PCL. Like the ACL, the PCL receives its blood supply from the middle geniculate artery. So briefly, what is the MCL and what is its function? 
The medial collateral ligament is composed of both a superficial and deep component, which are separated by a bursa. The superficial component is the primary restraint to valgus stress and can be tested in isolation at 30 degrees of knee flexion. It originates slightly proximal and posterior to the medial femoral epicondyle by about 3 and 4 millimeters respectively and has a broad insertion running just distal to the articular surface and continuing about 6 centimeters down the tibia, inserting into the periosteum just deep to the pes tendons. Remember that during a hamstring harvest for an ACL reconstruction, you need to go through the sartorius located in layer 1 to harvest the gracilis and semitendinous, while avoiding the saphenous nerve which lies between layers 1 and 2. You need to avoid going too deep and getting into the superficial MCL, which comprises layer 2. This anatomic association also comes into play with the development of a Stener-type lesion following a grade 3 MCL injury. When this occurs, the distal insertion of the superficial MCL can tear and flip proximally over the pes tendons. The deep MCL is essentially a capsular thickening and is intimately associated with the medial meniscus via the coronary ligaments. Posteriorly, the fibers of the deep MCL blend with the posterior oblique ligament. Quick testable correlate. What does the posterior oblique ligament do? It resists internal rotation of the tibia in full extension. While we're on the subject, what muscle internally rotates the tibia on the initiation of knee flexion, thereby unlocking the tibia from its, its externally rotated position in full extension? The popliteus. Alright, finally let's go over the posterior lateral corner. To truly understand the posterior lateral corner, it is important to know the anatomy and the function of the structures that make up the parts of its whole. In order to do this, we will take a detailed approach to the lateral side of the knee. The initial two structures encountered on dissection of the lateral corner of the knee are the iliotibial band and biceps. The iliotibial band lies anterior to the biceps. It inserts on the tibia at Gertie's tubercle. The bicep lies posterior to the IT band and inserts onto the fibular head. In fact, it is the most posterior structure on the fibular head. These two structures make up the first layer of the lateral knee joint. They are also both considered dynamic stabilizers of the posterior lateral corner. To remember some of the IT band anatomy, just think about what it's famous for, IT band syndrome. IT band syndrome comes from a tight IT band that is constantly moving across the lateral femoral epicondyle until it inflames the underlying bursa. It is moving anterior and posterior across the epicondyle. Each time it changes from anterior to posterior, it also changes from an extensor to a flexor of the knee. Can you think of a clinical test that exemplifies this change? The pivot shift test. And what nerve innervates the IT band, in other words, the tensor fascia lata? Think up to the Smith-Pete approach to the hip. IT innervation is from the superior gluteal nerve. The Smith-Peterson approach is between the tensor fascia lata and gluteus medius and sartorius and rectus femoris. Tensor fascia lata and gluteus medius are innervated by the superior gluteal nerve and the sartorius and rectus femoris, the femoral nerve. Alright, back down to the knee. So posterior to the IT band, still in layer 1, is the biceps femoris. The biceps runs to the fibular head and is the most posterior structure to insert on the fibula. 
Behind and underneath the biceps lies the common perineal nerve. Here's another testable fact. What is the only muscle in the thigh innervated by the perineal division of the sciatic nerve? The short head of the biceps. And how can you remember that versus the long head? The short head is more distal. The nerve branches distally. At least that's how I remember it. So far then in layer one, we've got our superior gluteal nerve innervated IT band anteriorly inserting on girdies and our sciatic nerve innervated biceps posteriorly inserting on the fibular head. This makes it an ideal surgical plane for the lateral approach to the knee. Behind and underneath the biceps is the common perineal nerve, which in terms of layers of the knee, we consider it to run between layers one and two. Layer two of the knee consists of the patellar retinaculum and the patellofemoral ligament. For the purposes of our talk, just know that they are in layer two, but neither of these structures are considered to be part of the posterolateral corner complex. Finally, we get to layer three. So far, we've talked about two of our dynamic stabilizers of the posterolateral corner, the biceps and IT band, and one important at-risk structure during injury and reconstruction, the common perineal nerve. Probably the three most important structures in terms of the posterior lateral corner are the lateral collateral ligament, the popliteus and its tendon, and the popliteofibular ligament. During reconstruction procedures, these are the three ligaments we try to recreate. In terms of these three structures, I want you to think of an upside down figure four. If you're visualizing this, to the left is anterior, to the right is posterior, and imagine a figure four with the point facing down. The vertical line of your upside down four is the lateral collateral ligament. It is a small cord-like structure that runs from the lateral femoral epicondyle down to the fibular head. A testable fact here is that it is the most anterior structure inserting on the fibular head. You can remember this by the fact that the LCL is also sometimes called the FCL or fibular collateral ligament or for our purposes the first collateral ligament, FCL. Either way, just try to remember that it inserts the most anterior on the fibula. The LCL also lies behind the center of rotation of the knee, so it is tight in extension and lacks inflection. You can test it in isolation at 30 degrees of flexion with varus stress. So continuing our figure four analogy, the next line takes us from the fibula and travels posterior and superior, or if you're visualizing it, up and to the right. This is the popliteofibular ligament. This ligament runs from the fibula to the myotendinous junction of the popliteus muscle. Testable facts about the PF ligament are number one, it comes off the fibula just posterior to the lateral collateral ligament and just anterior to the biceps. So the order of insertion of the structures on the fibular head goes the LCL, the popliteofibular ligament, and the biceps. The upside down figure four can help you to remember the order of the first two. Finally, we've got our last line in the figure four, which is the popliteus tendon. The popliteus tendon runs from the muscle belly on the back of the tibia, runs intraarticular through the popliteal hiatus behind the lateral meniscus, and inserts onto the lateral femoral condyle on the popliteus sulcus. Obviously, because it is running intraarticularly, it must be running deep to the LCL. So in terms of our figure four, you can draw it running underneath the initial vertical line. Question writers like to focus on the relationship between the origin of the LCL and the insertion of the popliteus. 
or the top of our vertical line in the end of the horizontal line. I like the mnemonic POP is MAD, meaning popliteus is medial, anterior, and distal to the origin of the LCL. Exactly how far apart are these two structures? 18.5 millimeters to be exact. Alright, so far we've discussed five components of the posterior lateral corner. The biceps, the IT band, the LCL, the popliteofibular ligament, and the popliteus. There are a few more players that you should recognize as included, but I have never seen a question that refers directly to them. The arcuate ligament, the fibulofibular ligament, and the lateral capsule are also considered static stabilizers of the PLC. The first two are basically posterior lateral capsular thickenings. The arcuate ligament is a Y-shaped ligament running from the lateral femoral condyle inserting onto the fibular head deep to the LCL, popliteofibular ligament, and the biceps. It is the most medial structure inserting on the fibular head. The fibulofibular ligament is variably present and runs from the fibula to the fibella if it is present. I've never seen them directly tested aside from recognizing these ligaments as lateral structures, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. The arcuate sometimes pops up in questions about the arcuate sign found on plane films and will be discussed later. Finally, in addition to the bicep and IT band, the lateral head of the gastroc is also considered a dynamic stabilizer of the posterior lateral corner. Alright, let's turn our attention now to the meniscus. The meniscus are crescent-shaped fibrocartilaginous structures that function to deepen the articular surface and aid in dispersing loads across the knee joint and act as secondary stabilizers. They are composed primarily of type 1 collagen. The medial meniscus is C-shaped and the peripheral 20-30% to 30 is vascularized, but for testing purposes, just remember the outer third. It has more soft tissue attachments and is less mobile than the lateral meniscus. The lateral meniscus is more circular, has fewer soft tissue attachments, has the popliteal hiatus, which is a good thing to look for when evaluating arthroscopy pictures on the exam, and is more mobile with twice the excursion of the medial meniscus. This increased excursion is a good point to remember because knowing that will allow you to rationalize a lot of the normal biomechanics of the knee we're going to discuss in a second. The outer 10 to 25% of the lateral meniscus is vascularized, but again, for testing purposes, just remember the outer third is the red zone. In other words, the vascularized zone that contains enough blood flow to allow for healing during meniscal repair. Alright, so that's a basic rundown of the anatomy of the knee joint and some of the structures we will be discussing in later lectures. Now I want to talk about how the geometry of the femoral condyles, tibial plateau, and the movement of the meniscus help to contribute to the normal biomechanics of the knee. So first, the femoral condyles. The lateral femoral condyle is longer in the A to P diameter and straighter when compared to the medial femoral condyle. If you look at the distal femur on end, it is shaped like a trapezoid. The lateral surface is tilted in 10 degrees, while the medial surface is tilted in 25 degrees. This is evident if you're fixing a distal femur fracture and trying to determine your screw length. If you want to look down the lateral surface face to make sure your plate is down, then you have to externally rotate the leg or internally rotate the C-arm about 10 degrees to get a perpendicular view. Whereas, if you want to look down the medial surface face to make sure your screws aren't too long, 
then you need to internally rotate the leg or externally rotate the C-arm about 25 degrees to get the fluoro shot. The point is, you have this relatively long and straight lateral femoral condyle and the shorter, more oblique-oriented medial femoral condyle. You can imagine these as wheels on a shopping cart. The straight one is going to travel forward on its merry way, while the short one that's kicked in doesn't want to do much of anything and will force the good wheel to pivot around it. The terrain that these wheels travel on also contribute to the motion, the terrain in this case being the tibial plateau. The medial tibial plateau is more concave, which contributes to its lack of translation when compared to the convex lateral tibial plateau surface. So as the knee is flexing and extending, the condyles are rolling and translating relative to the tibial plateau. When the knee is extended, they're translated anteriorly. As the knee flexes, it begins pivoting around the medial side. The lateral side, with its long straight condyle, convex surface, and lateral meniscus capable of twice the amount of translation, begins to translate posteriorly across the surface of the tibia. This causes a relative internal rotation of the tibia on the femur during flexion of the knee. This motion is reversed on extension of the knee. From flexed to extended, the motion again pivots around the shorter, more oblique medial femoral condyle and concave tibial plateau, while the long straight lateral femoral condyle races forward on the convex lateral tibial plateau, and twice as mobile lateral meniscus translates anteriorly. This causes a relative external rotation of the tibia in relation to the femur on full extension. This motion is known as the screw home mechanism. So again, the tibia is externally rotated on extension of the knee. This is about 10 degrees of external rotation during the last 20 degrees of knee extension. This motion essentially locks the knee into extension by tension of the collateral and cruciate ligaments. The popliteus, which wraps around from its insertion on the lateral femoral condyle to the posterior tibia, is an internal rotator of the tibia. It fires on the initiation of knee flexion, internally rotating the tibia, thereby unlocking the knee joint. One more point about the geometry of the knee that I find helpful to keep in mind. On a lateral projection of the distal femur, the lateral femoral condyle appears more anterior and proximal and the medial femoral condyle more posterior and distal. So again, the lateral femoral condyle is more anterior and proximal and the medial femoral condyle more posterior and distal. Now think about this in relation to the tibial plateau. The medial tibial plateau is concave and the lateral tibial plateau is convex. When you look at the surface of the tibial plateau in the coronal plane, it is in about 3 degrees of varus in relationship to the tibial shaft. So when you think about the knee extended, it makes more sense that the medial femoral condyle has to go more distal, and when flexed, it needs to be more posterior in order to stay congruent with the relatively lower medial tibial plateau when compared to the lateral side. I also want you to keep that relationship in mind when we get to the arthroplasty section and we address different cut angles of the knee. All right, let's finally move on to the patellofemoral joint. This is the articulation between the patella and the femoral trochlea. You can think about the patella as having medial and lateral facets with a relatively flat keel like a boat traveling along the V-shaped trochlea. 
The patella withstands an incredible amount of force, approximately seven times body weight when doing squats and two to three times body weight when descending stairs. It has the thickest articular cartilage in the body. When looking at a sunrise view of the patellofemoral joint, remember, as we mentioned, that the lateral femoral condyle is more anterior. Therefore, when determining which side is lateral, unless it's dysplastic, the more prominent side is the lateral side. Because of the Q angle of the knee joint, the natural tendency is for the patella to sublux laterally. Therefore, it is important that the lateral femoral condyle be more prominent. Past 30 degrees of flexion, the primary restraint to lateral subluxation are the bony constraints, in other words, the lateral femoral trochlea. In extension, the primary static stabilizer is the medial patellofemoral ligament, which runs just anterior and distal to the adductor tubercle, just above the superficial MCL insertion to the superior medial border of the patella at the junction of the proximal and middle thirds. The medial patellofemoral ligament is the primary check rein from 0 to 20 degrees of flexion. This change in stabilizers, depending on the degree of knee flexion, helps to make sense of the J sign. In terminal extension, the patella is subluxed laterally, and as the knee flexes, the patella engages the trochlea and slides back into the groove. Alright, that concludes our talk on the structure and function of the different components of the knee joint. As I said, this lecture is basically designed to give a brief overview of what we will be addressing in the later talks. The next lectures are going to focus more specifically on each anatomic structure addressing anatomy, pathology, and treatment. Thanks again for listening.